thank you all for the chance that you're giving me to try out some of the <coughs> ideas I've been working on about, about the situation we're in today. So let me launch into that, try to, I think we always have to try to get a hold on the age we live in and what characterizes it and what its important features are if we're going to be able to respond to it. And so I keep thinking about that, and <coughs> this is where I'm at at the moment. I think the, what people call a secular age that we live in, has been put together by several developments, some of them very long-term developments, some of them very recent. If you take some of the longest-term developments, there, is, there are a couple that I think have gone under the name of disenchantment, this famous word that Max Weber first pioneered and it's become very common and it's used in so many senses that, that sometimes it confuses more than it clarifies. But I want to pick out two senses that I think are very important. One is a long-term development, I mean over five centuries I think, you know, from let's say 1500 to 2000. Disenchantment in the sense that 500 years ago, in Europe anyway, our ancestors lived in a world that they felt was full of spirits, magic forces, um, spirits of the woods who were in some ways malign because they could uh, you know, give disease to the cattle or destroy the crops. Other kinds of forces, relics that were on the contrary very benign, relics that could cure various diseases and so on. And this was not a matter just of what people believed, it was a matter of their sensibility. They, they didn't, uh, they had a real experience of this. This wasn't just something that they worked out a theory that they, uh, that they subscribed to. It's a real, really felt reality. And if you go to other parts of the world today that are still, still have that kind of I mean, there are various, you know, people have written about uh, <clears throat> Africa, uh, ethnographers and so on, and you find this very similar kind of sensibility. I think that we make terrible mistake from out of our present situation where we are relatively insensitive to that, to that dimension of things, and think that those people were just mistaken mistaken in many ways, they certainly were because we are all mistaken in some important respect. But I think the difference is also a difference of, of as I say, sensibility of how, what one feels, what one gets from the world as one walks around in it, how one experiences it. And as a matter of fact, we could, we could think of ourselves as deprived in relation to them just as much as we can think of them as deprived of the kind of knowledge we have in relation to us. And as a matter of fact, this is a very important part of, <clears throat> of Western culture, that really which springs from the Romantic Revolution, which has been trying to recover a certain kind of sensibility in relation to the world that surrounds us. Yeah? So that's one very big change, living in a disenchanted world in that sense. There's another important aspect that you could describe 
by the word disenchantment, which is uh, really uh, at the level of, uh, <clears throat> as we were, educated belief, uh, educated theorizing, we're all then at the level of very general sensibility. And that is that, uh, you know, less, less long ago, 300 years ago, 250 years ago, people looked on society in the light of and its relation to conceptions of the cosmos and conceptions of the cosmos that were very morally charged. There are higher kinds of being, lower kinds of being, there are levels of being. You know, the famous uh, great chain of being which uh, Lovejoy described. And that, the idea of seeing the society as embedded in the cosmos made one think that, well, society has to conform to an order of things that is there prior to it and that is normative for it. So people saw the different levels of power and <clears throat> might and importance in society, royalty, nobility, clergy, common people, people living in, in cities, burghers, peasants, and so on. They saw these as arranged in an order of, of priority and higher and lower. So in a certain sense, the structure of society is something that is made, that is there, or if we try to deviate from it, then terrible things happen to us. We have to, as it were, read society through the, through the grid of <coughs> these notions of cosmic order. And once again, these have <clears throat> just about disappeared from our, from our radar, from our screen of belief. And really, I think here, the most important development which has brought this about is the, is the coming of 17th century natural science based on uh, an idea that there is no, no uh, moral distinction to be made between different forces and different causal laws and so on with which we explain the universe around us. So that's a second kind of disenchantment. We live in, a, in that sense in a disenchanted world, a world of, of science. And that I try to try to put those two developments together and to say that we live what I want to call in an imminent frame <clears throat> today. By that, uh, I want to try to explain what I mean by that, living in an imminent frame. First of all, the imminent frame is, you could see it put up, put together major part <coughs> by looking at uh, modern natural science for our description of the cosmos which surrounds us and looking at our way of understanding history today for our understanding of how we see society. And instead of seeing societies as embedded in these cosmic moral orders, we all look on our societies as built in certain historical moments. I mean, the, <clears throat> the American Republic, and we know the dates, of the Declaration of Independence, 1776, and the American Constitution in 1787, and so on, or, you know, to name any country you want to speak of, and we look back to a certain moment at which its present constitution was set up by name, named people by certain particular acts and, uh, <coughs> and decisions and so on. 
So we see this as, as human-made orders, constantly being made and remade and remade. And that's the other aspect of our conception of the imminent frame. But I want to try to make a bit clearer what I mean by living in the imminent frame, because this is very important. I don't mean the imminent frame, the idea that the world that we see is understandable purely in terms of natural science as for the constitution of the universe and purely in terms of particular acts of foundation and unfoundation and <laughs> undermining in regard to the societal world. That can be, it could have a theory, but that's all there is. But living in the imminent frame is being aware that what we share with everybody else in this imminent frame is precisely these reference points to natural science and the order of history as we've seen it. But we differ very profoundly on whether the question of whether that's all there is, right? So we're very, it's one thing to adopt a position that that's all there is, and a lot of our our co-inhabitants of this imminent frame adopt that position. People in this room don't, in general, and that makes a very profound difference. But we're aware all the time that what we share with them, what we have to refer to if we're going to communicate to them about many questions, is constituted by what I'm calling the imminent frame. So we're living in it but living in it very different ways. I mean, it's a similar analogy. If you live in a democracy today <clears throat> and you're active in it, you have some sense of how it works, how decisions are made, what you have to do to change things, which you share with a whole lot of other people who have very different purposes than you do. They're, they're right, you're left, or they're other way around, and they want to do things through this common uh, world of institutions very different to what you want. <clears throat> but you're aware that that's what you share. So living in the imminent frame is what I would argue in the West today we're all doing. That's living in, not believing that's all there is, but living in. <clears throat> so that's one very important development. Now, there's another very important development, which I think together with the, these disenchantments that I've been talking about, really give us a sense of where we're at. And I want to use a word for this, which I'm inventing and which <laughs> is even more opaque than the word disenchantment, maybe. I call it unbundling. <coughs> and what I mean by that is the following, particularly speaking here, it's perhaps more evident than speaking on the other side of the Atlantic about this. But if you go back far enough, again, in European societies, you get a world in which you have, if you like, confessional states. Or, I mean, prior to the Reformation, one being Latin Christendom, which was a large-scale confessional civilization, that is. So it's the, it's the idea of Christendom here which I'm getting to. Christendom, not Christianity, Christendom. Christendom is the attempt, that's how I want to define it, is an attempt to make over the whole society its politics, its art, its literature, 
its uh, uh, culture in all its forms have been informed by the Christian religion, right? And that's certainly what we lived in, let's call it Latin Christendom, from which we, uh, all the present societies of the West spring. And in a certain sense, what we, what we see is the, in what I call unbundling, is the end of Christendom. And again, there are two, I want to mention two <coughs> ways we can understand unbundling. In one way in which things were very bundled in a, in a confessional state is that, you know, let's say take anyone, I mean, okay, Belgium, <laughs> we are here. Well, you, to be, uh, belong to Belgium, be a part of Belgium, you would be a Catholic, you would have a certain moral outlook, you <coughs> Catholic against the Protestant because the, the Netherlands was split, you know, by the great revolution again, the revolutionary attempt against the Spanish domination here into Catholic and Protestant areas. And so you're belonging to the state, you're having the religious uh, uh, belonging you have, you're having the cultural, the moral outlook you have, all those go together. As against that, you look at a great number of modern democracies, and yes, everybody is a citizen of this state in this in a particular democracy, everyone's a citizen of Belgium today who's living here, etc. But they have different religious views, different cultural views, different moral views. They, some of them are engaged in different kinds of spiritual exercise and so on and so on, and some of them not, some of them are atheists, etc. You can go that there's a tremendous unbundling in that sense. And the second form of unbundling, which you can also see going on, it's a certain sense, just another side of the first, is that, here I'm gonna go back to my own experience, if you go back in uh, Quebec 50 years ago, 60 years ago, I've forgotten how, <coughs> how short a time it is. You had a parish in the country, a Catholic parish, and in that parish, all kinds of spiritual and you know, quasi-spiritual activities were going on. There was charitable activities, there were sodalities to <coughs> devotion to the Virgin Mary, there were pilgrimages being organized. <coughs> there were the Gignole, where at the time of Christmas people gave presents in and they were redistributed. All these activities were done in the same organization, the parish organization of that society. And here again, we have, corresponding to that, a tremendous unbundling going on, so that someone may be, for purposes of helping people and the world they're giving to Oxfam for purposes of uh, spiritual development. They're in some meditation group for purposes of, of various types of solidarity with other people that are in this other group and so on. <laughs> our lives are distributed among different agencies and media in which we carry out these spiritual and quasi-spiritual and spiritual related activities. That's another kind of unbundling. Now these two together bring about, if you like, the end of Christendom. Christendom, okay, not Christianity. And they create a new situation. Now the new situation uh, 
which arises in a world of this kind, a new spiritual situation, is one that uh, has led to there being a tremendous number of people who are what you might call seekers. <clears throat> They're people who, in terms of their response to the imminent frame, very much feel that's not all there is. They're looking for something more, but they're finding it, they're finding it, or they're, they're well, they're not simply finding it. They're, the point is they're seeking it, aware that they haven't fully found it, aware that there's much more exploration, much more depth to go into, but they're seeking it in very different ways. And this is the, the way of being of, of the seeker. As against there's, there's an actual sociologist, an American sociologist, with no who, uses this expression as part of a binary. Once again, the, <laughs> the binaries that Marco was talking about. Seekers and dwellers. People whose relation to their religious life is very much to be part of a long-standing church, structure, the life that's been going on within it, and really very happy within that, as against seekers who may or may not belong to the church in that sense, may, may have a dweller part of them or not, but basically have the sense that they have to go further, they have to somehow deepen this they're missing something very important. They're wanting to move forward and they're looking for various disciplines. And that, of course, is where uh, meditation can enter people's lives. I mean, it's, it's, not, uh, <clears throat> it's not a surprise to me, from the standpoint of this analysis, why uh, this movement, which started off, and I was kind of sort of around at that time, not so long ago in Montreal, uh, with a you know, few dozen people in a room up there on Pine Avenue <coughs> on the mountain, has now burgeoned into this vast organization. I mean, 100,000 people uh, in all countries that you could name and think of. It, that's part of, I think that's what you'd expect in a world where so many people are seeking, and lots of people are seeking elsewhere, and this doesn't capture all the secrets, but there's a large number of people, because they are seeking, are looking to uh, this, uh, this community. And so, what is it about this world uh, in which there are these seekers that, what, what are the features of it? Well, one of the features is that even people who are members of the church have a different stance towards it if they're seekers than if they're dwellers and they're moving in all sorts of ways that don't look terribly traditional and that worries a lot of people quite understandably who are very much dwellers who are within the same churches but very much as as uh, as dwellers and People very often talk about this from a standpoint of a very orthodox continuity 
in very negative terms. I mean, they talk about smorgasbord, seeking Christians, picking this and not taking that, you know. Smorgasbord probably doesn't mean anything to anyone anymore. <coughs> well, uh, no, cafeteria, that's what, another expression. <laughs> you, you walk on the cafeteria, well, I want a bit of this, I don't want that, I want a bit of this, and so on. And that's, that's a very negative description of people who are as against taking the table d'eau, taking the whole, the whole meal as prescribed on, on the menu. And so there's a certain amount of suspicion and, and <clears throat> uh, denigration of the, of, the, of the seeker standpoint. But I think we should understand this in the light of what I've been trying to say. That is, we're in a new age and a new situation, and these people, these seekers, the ones that are Christian, are trying to find their way to the faith from out of this world. I think you have to see this in the context of, well, there are various biblical references of people coming from east and west and north and south, right, to the Holy Land, to Zion. <clears throat> they come, they gather together from these different places. And it's like another place, if you like metaphysically described, we're in another place. We're in, as a matter of fact, an uh, unprecedented place in history, we who live in, the, in this modern secular age in the West, because, we're, because of dwelling in, living in the imminent frames and knowing what the general understanding of our <coughs> world is, the one that we share with non people without the faith, people with different faith, and so on, knowing what that is, and carrying it with us as we try to approach or deeper and deeper into our faith. So it's really, you could describe it like this, that anyone, anyone's life at any time has lots of voices going on in their heads and their soul and, and impulses, and they're trying to make sense of it all and bring them together in some way. Well, one of our voices is the voice that is very aware of speaking from within the imminent frame. And that is that, of course, like always, like starting from any situation that makes strains and tensions and can we put it together and can we make it fit all together and so on, that, <coughs> that problem is going to be there. But there is a particular set of issues, questions, if you like, lack of harmony of the voices or lack of unison of the voices in us, which comes from the fact that we live in a secular age. And you can turn it around the other way too. We're living in the imminent frame in a way that other people who don't share any faith position are living in the imminent frame very differently. We don't take it as seriously to the same degree as other people do, right? And <clears throat> That is, take a series of giving the final answer to certain problems. So, so we're coming from a new place. And I think, you know, I could, I'm theologically very challenged, I have to admit. I mean, I am facing a number of people here who have much deeper knowledge of theology, but somewhere I remember reading, it seems to me that 
in a way that's what it, that's how it's meant to be that somehow we have to we human beings have to find ways from find let's call them itinerary that's what I like I like to put it we have to find itineraries to Christ to God from everywhere every possible human situation and if we, this is a new human situation which has been brought on by the development of modern natural science <coughs> by uh, a disenchanted universe and so on and so on we're in this new situation and we have our task our uh, particular uh, starting point for our itineraries it's unprecedented in history and we have to find away from here to the well there isn't a single there there except if we want to say God but that ultimate harmony ultimate singing together ultimate a meeting point with everyone else and that's our job that's our vocation so rather than seeing this as a falling off I see this as a new task that we have to <coughs> we have to realize our new starting point and uh, now there's some features of this uh, way of, of being which are quite surprising in some ways but they understandable again if you look at what the situation is like one of them is the new ecumenicism that as a matter of fact the 20th century was the locus or site or, or period in which ecumenicism took an extraordinary leap forward even surprising I mean even very often extremely uh, people ex ex uh, conceiving very narrowly their Christian or indeed other Muslim etc allegiances even those that were perhaps you would think most averse to the idea of <coughs> praying together or meeting together or trying to exchange with other faiths were brought around to this ecumenical stance it's something that is very few people are willing now to openly condemn or, or want to withdraw from but there's something different about the ecumenicism of seekers in our age in that it goes beyond I mean ecumenicism starts well let's stop fighting okay let's, and then we take a step farther let's stop speaking ill of each other you know, running each other down we're right you're wrong and the contrast is etc and sometimes it stops there and you know thank God for small mercies <laughs> it at least gets that far uh, that's a very good thing but you find among seekers today a very different kind it's an ecumenicism of partly genuine desire to know they want to know we want to ask each other and some very often you have atheists who are joining these groups rather exceptional they're not you know they don't read Richard Dawkins there but they're atheists and they have some kind of sense of spiritual life and that is some kind of sense of how one can make some kind of advance in the depth of understanding and the, and the excellence of being that <clears throat> they see as possibilities for human beings 
And so we sit down together and we say, well, you know, I'd like to know what makes you tick. I mean, how it all seems from your point of view, what, what inspires you, what, what moves you in your uh, <coughs> spiritual direction. And out of this come very, very important insights. I mean, sometimes you get genuinely new, new ways of being, you know. Father John in <laughs> Malaysia were, well, right, was there with the guru that he was meditating with. And uh, so you pick, and then of course he, he rediscovers in the Christian tradition something of the same thing. But the trigger for that seems to have been, if I get it right, seems to have been a <clears throat> coexistence exchange with somebody from a very different religious background. So you learn things, but also it becomes an ecumenicism of friendship and even of alliance because I'm thinking certain you know, fights in my own life recently, uh, you know, a fight against, a struggle against, a kind of very dangerous and mindless Islamophobia that's growing in all, all our societies. And we've had our bouts in Quebec and we've had fights about this and trying to convince people. And then I think of the alliance of different figures that we're working together. There are some Christians, some Muslims, some atheists, some far out uh, condemners of, <coughs> of piety and so on. And we, is the mic not working? I mean, I suppose I, I'm not talking to this because I, I'm wired. Okay. <laughs> In every sense of the word. I, um, Better? Is this. Uh, are you hearing? Uh, yeah, that. Um, yeah, so there are, there are all these very different standpoints. And there's a very powerful sense of solidarity that develops among us around this very important point, which we agree on, right, for very different points of view. And so a friendship and this solidarity is a new, in other words, it's a new phenomenon. It's a very much a post-Christendom phenomenon, right? It's only really conceivable in a world in which there is this tremendous difference among people who are living in the same society as against a world which is very much seen as, as it ought to be within the Christian compass, within, within Christianity. Are we, another thing that is very often said about these <coughs> new seekers is that they're breaking the continuity of the Christian faith. But that's interestingly enough not true either. Because, again, we're looking at the, the example of this association we all belong to, but we, we don't need to look there, we can look elsewhere as well. And what you find here is that there are people in that search, precisely in that search, find tremendous help, solace, inspiration, very often by people who lived a very different age. You know, we, we're reaching back all people, the readings and the various prayer moments here, Meister Eckhart, 
they go beyond the Christian tradition, but within the Christian tradition, there's Meister Eckhart, there's Sardesa, and so you can see how there is getting deeply into your age, pitches you out of your age to look for inspiration elsewhere. You see, something like this happened in Vatican II. It's, it's a repeat of the same move that the various people who created the Nouvelle Théologie that became inspiration of Vatican II, Congarde, Dubac, Chenu, and so on, all these people were accused of rupture of continuity. The, the great thing was anti-modernism, <clears throat> and the great danger after Pius X was modernism, right? And what they pointed out, the, uh, the Nouveau Théologien, if you like, pointed out, was that the tradition that they were rupturing only started, you know, in, roughly speaking, in uh, Trent. If you went back to the Fathers, you got a new way of seeing the whole tradition <coughs> and which liberated you from being chained to that particular line running from and liberated you to be able to contact, uh, get contact with a much wider range of Christian spiritualities that existed in the broader tradition. And it's the same kind of thing, I think, which is happening, can happen, in a world of seekers coming out of the imminent frame. <clears throat> and I think there's another big issue here, which we should try to bring out, which is precisely this relationship between the seeking we're doing now and the <clears throat> whole of Christian history, of human history, put it as you would like. I think that there is a certain view which has developed in Christendom that the move from the Pentecost to the Parousia to the end of time proceeds by Christendom growing bigger and bigger and bigger. So we send out missions and they, they create new Christendoms and other parts of the world and then it goes on and on and on. Almost as though there were kind of imitating modern notions of liberal progress where we have we move from you know feudalism to democracy and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and <clears throat> finally the whole world is singing hosanna you know in a democratic united nations and so on almost as though it's a kind of not a parody but a kind of you know imitation of that as against the deep powerful interruptions that you see in history. Whole Christendoms have been wiped out, you know? or, or are being wiped out in our time. Syrian Nestorians, you know? it's, there are these big interruptions. So maybe what really matters is not are we growing bigger and bigger and bigger, are we accreting more and more people, but <clears throat> are we laying down what the Gospels talk about as mustard seed, right? Mustard seed starts very small and then you put it in the ground and then <clears throat> you look away and come back several years later, it's a huge tree, right? The birds are making their nests. 
Well, I mean, John May planted a mustard seed. It's exactly what we've seen happening, right? You know, we just turn away for 40, 50 years, and what do we see? We see the, <coughs> the world community as it exists today. It's, the thing has grown. So it's up to God to put all these together into some kind of coherence, but that's what we are about. Well, now, that's the, the that's, uh, I've given you a very good story in the last few minutes. That's not the only story. There's a bad story. And the bad story is that there is a, another kind of reaction to this, as I mentioned earlier, a reaction of fear, a reaction of wanting to put it all back into the box, put the Humpty Dumpty again, together again. And this, is, this can be very powerful. And I think we see this in some ways on a world scale. And <clears throat> I mean, let's think of what's going on in the Islamic world as an example. You get a very deep sense of interruption there from outside in a sense of, of uh, anger and uh, <clears throat> and a sense of uh, terrible loss involved in, in colonial rule, an attempt to mobilize against that. And certain, certain of these mobilizations can take the form of saying, well, we return to an integral Islam. Oh, here I have something. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for the hint. I needed <laughs> that. <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> you get these appeals to religion. Now there's something even weirder too you get today. You get appeals to religion by people that don't really have any devotion at all. It's appeals to historical religion. I mean, take a signal case example is the Indian BJP. You know? Indian BJP was inspired by an intellectual called Savarkar back in the 20s. He was an atheist, but he thought that India should be inspired by Hindu culture. This invention, invented word Hindutva, you know. Of course, Hinduism didn't exist in the 18th century because they didn't think of themselves. But Hindutva didn't exist either. And Hindutva is a new kind of invention where you could be whatever you want in terms of belief, but you should bow to the superiority, the, if you're in India, of <coughs> Hindu culture. And this leads, of course, to terrible persecutions of others, particularly Muslims in India. And, but I mean, there are other examples of this, you know, Milosevic in Serbia, atheist, communists, uh, appealing to the Kosovo Polia, the great you know, defeat at the hands of the Turks at, the, at Kosovo Field. <clears throat> uh, all these appeals that are made by people who have really no very deep devotional life at all. So you have rather strange mixture here. But what you also have is a repeat of a very old human pattern which I think uh, René Girard really got his mind around, the pattern of scapegoating. And part of the 
part of the psychological mechanism, if you like, behind scapegoating is very easy, too easy to understand. Things are going wrong, our society isn't working right, it isn't living up to its ideals. What is causing this? Well, I know what's causing this. It's this element, this foreign element, which is in some ways poisoning us, making us deviate, and so on, so whoops, sorry, no. I've got to watch this. <clears throat> I'll put my hands behind my back. No, that won't work. I got, um, so we have to do something about that. And I've seen this very close up, you see, because in Quebec we had this campaign with a program, I mean, campaign by the then government, with a program to restrict the wearing of the hijab and other religious signs. And this was rendering impure our laicite, our secularism, right? There was something that was un undoing a crucial moral uh, principle of our society. And this, in a sense, um, a world in which we really believe or profess to believe in human rights and equality makes this process even worse, even more inhuman. Because instead of saying to someone, well, we feel you make us feel uncomfortable, please go away. We say, you're wrong, you're evil. <clears throat> it's not just you make us uncomfortable, but you're, in a way, polluting us and so on. And that is, that is a very powerful reaction which people experience through the whole range of markers of mobilization which have to do with religion from those which really are appealing to a religion <coughs> which requires great devotion to those who are appealing to a notion of religion which is purely historical. But they both have this same common feature that they find this disturbing element is somehow preventing them from being what they really are. <coughs> and uh, so we have a world in which we have to combat this kind of turn in religion. Now I think that the, the kind of ecumenicism which grows up in a world of seekers could play a role, positive role here, because the kind of understanding which arises, if you go beyond ecumenicism just of not fighting and not speaking ill of the other, maybe thinking pretty ill, but not speaking <laughs> ill of the others. <clears throat> Ecumenicism that goes beyond that really does create some kind of increase in understanding of what is moving people from other faiths. And what you find happening, and the good thing you find happening in the world today is that, I'm sure you all have experiences of this kind, that Christians who have that attitude are meeting up with Muslims who have that attitude, with Hindus who have that attitude, with Jews who have that attitude, and so on, and forming exactly the kind of alliances I was mentioning earlier, the alliances which, which generate a kind of real friendship and closeness, because in a certain sense, we're defending our respective faiths against terrible deviation, as we see a terrible deviation, the one that mounts one against the other and makes it the enemy. So there is here a possible antidote. Um, this 
sounds a bit ridiculous because the forces being mobilized <laughs> for Hitler are sort of massive scale, the BJP in India and so on. And here we are, <coughs> a few people, but, but uh, the power of this kind of, of <coughs> truth, if you like, about our different faiths, it gives us a little bit more leverage than we would, you would gather from our relatively thin numbers. Right? <coughs> and, but we have to, in order to win, to make gain ground, say win, we're never gonna win totally, gain ground, bring people around, we have to exercise some of the same virtues in another domain. We have to, I mean, the virtues I'm talking about here in this kind of exchange are that you, you really try to understand what moves that other person and you're, you're willing to shut up and listen and try to get your mind around it and you find you have to change your concepts to get your mind around it and you have to widen your possible explanatory uh, you know, models in order to get your mind around it, that kind of effort, right? Instead, the, as you could imagine, meditation is very good for this kind of, for this kind of development. And so you need, if you like, to speak in terms of the academy, sort of ethnographic sense, feel, right? And the, this is what we need also in our combat. That if, if the combat against this kind of narrow hate-directed religion is gonna succeed, you have to be able to talk to the people who are in the grip of it. And you can't talk to them if you simply say, now if I flip over to the last US election, if I simply say you're all deplorable, you're all rednecks, you're all narrow. <clears throat> we have to understand what is getting into that. I mean, for instance, in Quebec, we had this commission on this whole set of issues, which I was co-chair of, and so we went around the province, and we heard people and after a while, when you hear people passionately saying very often the same things in Shikuchimi and Montréal and Ribouski and so on, you get, you, get the, you get the emotional point. They were afraid. They were afraid they would, the question that came back and back, est-ce qu'ils vont nous changer? Are they gonna change us? That's the fear. And you go into various parts of Germany today and you the same thing. Same thing that makes a lot of Germans reach for the notion of light culture, of leading culture. It's the same fear, right? Well, I said, this is the culture, we've got to stick with, you know, Goethe and nothing else. <clears throat> and the, you have to understand that and be able to talk to that and be able to even respect those feelings, those fears aren't, don't come from an evil place. They come from a very humanly understandable place. And even, See, even people who are in deep into scapegoating, well, underneath that is very often uh, an appeal to a good, the good of the traditional culture, which they wrongly see as being endangered, I think very much wrongly see as being endangered by these other people from another culture. But that itself is a very positive, uh, very positive thing. I'm really impressed in the present, if I can veer off into the present discussion in the United States, I'm really impressed by 
some writers who have come to understand the positive elements in cultural identity, which along with a lot of negative elements, like looking down on, on people of different color and so on, but the positive elements uh, in these cultures, which if you grasp that, you're able to talk to people in the grip of that kind of, <coughs> of that kind of scapegoating in a way which has a chance of succeeding. A chance, the sense that something in them has been understood. So it is this kind of openness that we need in order to combat successfully, I don't mean win great victories, but small victories count. And progress counts. Turning people around counts. I mean, that plus, this plus bringing people together so that they cease to fear each other is the way slowly, in a way, person by person to make headway against this. And then, <clears throat> so let me say, in the end, once again, I think it's been evident in all of this, how important meditation is, not just because we're trying to go deeper into a faith that we recognize we don't really understand fully, we have a lot of progress to do, which makes, should make a certain humility in face of others, but we, I think, are forced to understand the process of, well, we've had it wrong up to now, really. We are, we've got to change our, what we're capable of seeing, let in other realities that we were screening out, right? And I think that this, therefore, the practice of meditation is very important in forming people who can take part in this widening movement of what I call the positive ecumenicism of friendship and undermine the movements of let's fight the other to the death, right? So I've tried to put together a few features of what I see as our contemporary condition and to illuminate what's going on and to, I hope, strengthen our resolve <laughs> to continue in this path. Thank you very much for your <laughs>